So that whole Old Testament, then even the New Testament, can be seen as like, where is this promised child? Dr. Adam Filipic, author of the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for July, Life in Christ, Rooted, Woven, and Grafted into God's Story. Who's going to crush the head of the serpent and give us back the very presence of God, that land that we dwelt with God in, no sorrow, no suffering, no sin, no death, but in his presence permanently. Learn more about life in Christ at issuesetc.org. Stanza four of the hymn from God, Can Nothing Move Me, it speaks there about how the Father sent his greatest treasure in Jesus Christ, his Son. He every gift imparts. This coming Sunday, Jesus tells a parable about a treasure in a field. It goes along with a pearl of great price and fish in the net and a scribe who brings out of his treasures things both old and new. What do all of those parables mean? Welcome back to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, the ninth Sunday after Pentecost. Pastor Sean Denzer joins us. He's Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome back. Great to be back, Todd. What is somewhat unexpected about the gospel reading and the parables it contains on this coming Sunday? Our Lord describes three different people, a man who finds treasure, a man who is a merchant looking for fine pearls, and somebody who tosses out the net to catch fish. And in our world, we would certainly put a lot of effort into the techniques and the methods to use for all these things. We'd know exactly what we're going after. We'd know that we uh, need to make a certain amount to edge out a profit and so forth. And we see, just as we saw with the parable of the sower, there's a flippantness, a lack of that kind of caution. I'm not going to say a lack of foresight or planning at all, but it's not this kind of squeeze every nickel and dime out of it attitude that we have as merchants or as workers. So, for instance, the merchant is not even interested in making any money, it seems. He's found the pearl he wants. He sells everything to get it. And likewise, the fishing is not very uh, concerned with who they pull in on the front end. And all of those then have to be at the root of our understanding of these parables, the urgency and the different nature of the kingdom of heaven. And just simply the fact that we can't go from our human analogies to construct what we think God's kingdom ought to be like. Rather, we should recognize the distinction of his kingdom and learn from the scriptures how to understand it. You say also that traditionally, as an example in Matthew 6, Christ is the treasure rather than, as we will see in the gospel reading, we are the treasure and Christ is the merchant and the other people. I don't know if I put it that way. I think we have to recognize something that the traditional interpretation of this parable has been from the beginning of the church, that Christ is the treasure and he is the pearl and that we, the Christians, are to uh, be willing to give up everything to, to have him. And that certainly does accord with what Jesus himself says earlier in the gospel when he says, store up for yourselves, not things that can be destroyed on earth, but treasures in heaven. What's interesting is today's propers, as I think you're alluding to, 
definitely push us in the opposite direction, which is a newer interpretation, but one I think that's quite desirable in a few ways. We'll see that internally in the text, but we'll also see the way the propers today support that idea that Christ is the one who comes, that the whole Trinity is at work to have us and to have us at great cost to himself, and that he will preserve us all the way to the end. What connecting themes would you preview for us in the propers for this coming Sunday? Well, again, with the theme of choosing, selecting, taking a great treasure that we want to have, we're going to have the theme of the chosen people of God throughout the readings. We're especially going to look at the Old Testament where the chosen people of God are named, and that's particularly our Old Testament reading, but also the Psalms that surround it. And we should understand, again, as I think we've mentioned before, that because Christ Jesus is the true Son of Israel, the true Israel himself, we now in the New Testament are not afraid to understand uh, what is spoken of the people of Israel as speaking about us, especially the way Paul talks about it, that we are the Israel of God, those who trust in Christ Jesus. They are the fulfillment of all the promises that were given to the Old Testament people. Another thing that we'll see is the love of God that acts. That might seem like a very simple thing. We always talk about the love of God, but just a simple reality that his love is the start of it. There's ways in which we speak about his need to die for our sin or that our sins were the cause of his saving activity. And, th and there's a sense in which that's true. But what we're not trying to say is that anything in us really is triggering his salvation. And even if we were to take the traditional understanding of the gospel reading, it's not to say that God is sitting there idle in a field awaiting our discovery of him and, and waiting for some action out of us. Uh, rather, we realize it's God's love that has acted for us. That's why we would treasure him so greatly. And, and that'll be the third, I think, connecting theme is even if we're going to especially understand these parables, speaking about Christ's unilateral action to rescue, to save, to purchase us at great cost, we are going to see that discipleship and love of the neighbor activity in this world flows out of his work. And I think our colleague will hold that together for us pretty well. Let's talk about the intro at it is uh, Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, glory be to the Father and to the Son. Psalm 105 and the excerpts we have of it are pretty good, I think, actually, for grasping both aspects of this parable and its understanding, whether this is God seeking the great treasure that he finds in us, or whether it's us seeking him with our whole heart. And we have both aspects of this, that the Christian is calling upon his name, the one who does all things, the one who is named Jacob, Israel, that is, as his chosen one, but also that we would seek him.
There's a quote right from the start, this antiphon from verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. This is the first song of Moses, the song that is sung there right on the banks of the Red Sea. So we see that this is a song of the salvation of God. It's a song of him rising up for his people. One of the songs that you might say sets Israel apart as a nation and as his chosen people. And that's why it's a really good setup for our Old Testament reading, which is Moses recalling that in Deuteronomy. It calls at the end there, offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. You are, in fact, the works, the miracles, and the judgments. You are the ones who are to be remembering these at all times. These are the descendants of Israel and the chosen ones of the Lord. You had mentioned the collect a moment ago. How does it read? Almighty and everlasting God, give us an increase of faith, hope, and love, that receiving what you have promised, we may love what you have commanded, through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is originally the Collect for Trinity 13, so it's a nice reuse of the old Collects that the church has heard often on Sundays. And I suppose in a way it's pretty comprehensive and generic, you might say, because it has faith, hope, and love, these theological virtues. But actually, I think its point is quite good and, and accords very well with the understanding that we always want to have of the relationship between our good works and sanctification and the justification, which is entirely God's work for us on our behalf. So we have that in kind of two ways. Give us an increase of faith, hope, and love. That would be faith in what has been accomplished, hope in what is yet to come, finally the resurrection, the judgment, the last day where we'll be vindicated, and love, which is the comprehensive word for all good works, all suffering, all patience, all of the virtues and fruits of the Spirit that we have in this life, in two ways, that we would receive what he has promised. And what would that be? Well, above all, salvation, and particularly salvation through the Old Testament, uh, through the people of Jacob and his descendants, but then by extension also to all the nations, as we know it is in Christ Jesus, and that we would love what he has commanded, that is to bear fruit. And, and that leads us really to a statement that Moses will repeat here in Deuteronomy as we look at our Old Testament reading. And we will be in Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 9, as the Old Testament reading right after this. Find out how your life story is interwoven with the life of Christ in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for July, Life in Christ Rooted, Woven, and Grafted into God's Story. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or learn more about Life in Christ at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month, Life in Christ Rooted, Woven, and Grafted into God's Story. This fallen creation is bested by tornado, hurricane, flood, pandemic, and more. LCMS Disaster Response helps our congregations, their pastors, and other church workers to reach out to their members and neighbors with mercy, which flows from Christ's altar. We offer quality volunteer training, help for congregational readiness and response, and disaster grant funding. To learn more, visit lcms.org disaster. 
That's lcms.org slash disaster. Grace, faith, scripture, and Christ alone. You're listening to Issues Etc. You wish your classical school could do more for struggling learners? Uncertain where to begin? The Memoria Press Schools Division includes Cheryl Swope, author of Simply Classical, a beautiful education for any child. The schools division will happily assist your school. Memoria Press offers an entire line of special needs resources for teaching math, reading, spelling, and more. Contact schools at memoriapress.com or order directly from simplyclassical.com with coupon code LPR23. Register today. The 2023 Lutherans for Life National Conference is October 11th through the 13th at the Holiday Inn Cincinnati Airport in Erlanger, Kentucky. The conference includes visits to the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Online registration is open now with early bird pricing at lutheransforlife.org conference. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Monday, July the 24th, we're looking forward to Sunday morning. According to the three-year lectionary, the ninth Sunday after Pentecost, Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. He is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. So, Sean, what is the Old Testament reading for this coming Sunday? It's from Deuteronomy chapter 7. We skip just the first few verses and begin at verse 6. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. That's uh, where our reading excerpts. It does miss some key stuff before it and afterwards, I think. Before it, it speaks about Israel's relationship with the Gentile nations nearby, in particular, that they wouldn't intermarry and that they wouldn't chase after other gods. Likewise, after it, it talks about the Lord's judgment, very similar to what we call the close of the commandments that actually was uttered with the first commandment, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers, for so-and-so, but showing steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. It's almost exactly what we have here in Deuteronomy, which I think helps to illuminate why this is the passage for today. The emphasis here is that the Lord is the one who chooses Israel. In fact, he does it as a bridegroom chooses a bride, even as a treasured possession, maybe a little bit on the nose about where we're going with the gospel, but someone that he loves and just the way it is for us too, something that we treasure, that we care for, that we sought out because of a great desire and love for it. Those are the things that we take the best care of, that we don't let anybody else defile, that we uh, keep with us at all times, that we 
make our promises with. So this is the way the Lord has treated his children, Israel. And Moses is the one speaking this, remember, as they are about to enter into the promised land. Well, except Moses won't be one who is going in. What I think is great is to see this little back and forth, which is echoed later on in the prophets and also in other places when it says, we did not get the victory in this battle by our own sword, or when it says, not for our sake, but for the sake of your glory, O Lord, in the Psalms. And here it says, not because we were big or better or the choicest of all people. That's not why the Lord chose Israel as his own heritage. But it couldn't be any clearer. Because the Lord loves you. Now, if you were to ask somebody, why do you love me? They might give all sorts of reasons, and that's totally fine. But it's not as if the the sum total of those reasons adds up mathematically to give you an answer in the form of a math equation. In a sense, the reason you love somebody is because you love them. And not much more can be said, only can be described and enacted. And this is the way I think we ought to understand the steadfast love of the Lord. It does not come from him finding us to be pleasing. It does not come because he has his secret list of reasons like some dating show, and uh, we'll see if they match up with yours. He loves us. This is, this is deep in his nature. And we know it because of all his promises, his words, and his actions to us. Uh, and that's why he does it. That's why he makes promises. And that's why he keeps them. So we see that this is a undeserved love, a grace, we call this, right? Totally freely done by the Lord who's able to do anything at all. And he does it for our salvation. He chooses us and chooses to have us as his own. It's beautiful promise that Moses makes. It does have a slight rebuke to us, I suppose, or a warning that we ought not forget this fact, that we ought not imagine that actually we have pleased God, we've made a place for ourselves. This is also what Paul warns about later in Romans when he says, you know, who has given a gift to God that he may be repaid? The answer is nobody. He's the one who's chosen us. He reminds the people of Israel, as Moses does, speaking on behalf of the Lord, what he's redeemed them from. Uh, he swore to the fathers that he would bring them into a promised land. Therefore, the Lord also swore that he would release them from the house of slavery. That this then is the quintessential moment that makes Israel Israel, is when the Lord does his action, when he rescues them out of the house of slavery where they don't even have their own houses, uh, and makes them his own people, a people who's devoted to him. And so it says that he is faithful to keep his covenant. He's faithful to remain active in steadfast love that doesn't give up, right? Undeserved and unconditional and infathomable love. This is the sort of love that the Lord has. And those then that he loves are to love and to keep his commandments as well. Now, that's what's not said next is the wrath. I think everybody knows this because we know the close to the commandments from the catechism, right? It means that we should fear his wrath and not do anything against the commandments, but rather we should see that he promises such blessings and temporal graces and all of his goodness to those that he gives his commandments. Therefore, we should also love and trust in him 
and gladly do what he commands. That's what it means here when it says uh, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. It can't be understood as a way of putting a precondition on his love or his activity. His love goes out fully and unilaterally. That isn't to say that he abides and tolerates rejection of his love forever. And we'll see that in the gospel as well. As I mentioned in the intro, this definitely seems to have been chosen to cast the gospel in a particular direction, which is certainly a shift that we see in Lutheran service book, and I guess in our times, compared to how it has been traditionally understood, that it's almost always been understood as the Christian having a cost of discipleship, to paraphrase a few of the labels for the other sections of the gospel, where this is clearly the teaching. And there's nothing wrong with that teaching, by the way. It just may be ought not to come from this particular passage. That would be the suggestion that our lectionary is casting for us. Just for some context, in the other versions of the three-year lectionary, the Revised Common Lectionary, for example, we hear from First Kings, and we hear something a little more that also includes the previous section, which is also part of their gospel reading. So we have a smaller section that zooms in. Thus, we've chosen this passage from Deuteronomy. The psalm is 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. Remember, the purpose of the psalm is to comment on the Old Testament reading more than anything else. And here I think it does quite a bit more than just that. So certainly what we have accords with what we just heard. The Lord surrounds his people. He does it this time forth and forevermore. You can see the steadfast love of the Lord at work in this psalm. You also kind of uh, peek ahead to where we're going, right? They're about to enter into the promised land. We know that Joshua and the judges will conquer, however imperfectly. Eventually the Lord will come to rest in Jerusalem. Well, here we are. As we sit outside the Jordan with Moses, we get a chance to peek into that with the psalm. So I think it's a fine choice there. You also see some of the parts of our Deuteronomy passage that were not included, particularly that the wicked ought not remain there, right? So certainly this was part of what Moses was warning about in just the verses before verse 6 in Deuteronomy 7. Likewise, what follows it, do good to those who are good, but to those who are turn aside to crooked ways, cast them off with the evildoers, fits with that close of the commandments saying that Moses is repeating after our reading. But what we see also fits well with what we'll have in the gospel, that the Lord, in fact, surrounds and protects his people, and that he makes us so that we cannot be moved. That is not something we would say of ourselves, and certainly the Psalms are full of places where the threat of moving us. I don't know, maybe that doesn't strike me as a particularly great analogy or fear that I'm going to be shifted. But imagine that if you're standing firm and all of a sudden somebody unsettles you. Well, I think we all know the feeling metaphorically of being unsettled and how troubling that is. So if you're firm, if you're built like a rock, if you're 
rock solid. If you are standing on your two feet and somebody could come up and run into you and you'd be able to react to it and not fall over, that's a stability, a power, a comfort that you can have. And notice, we don't get this from ourselves. We don't work this up in ourselves. We have it by trusting in the Lord. The Lord himself is the rock that no one can move. To trust in him is to gain from him all of his immovability. And I think that's going to be a a wonderful lead in actually to our epistle reading that talks about being entirely connected with Christ Jesus so that nothing can move or separate us from him. And we will get to that epistle reading in Romans 8 with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, as we look forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary next. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue our adventures in Acts with repentance that leads to life. First called Christians, martyrdom of James, Peter rescued, and when you pray but don't expect an answer. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. It's commonly said that heresies are 90% truth and only 10% wrong, but it's the 10% that subverts all of Christian doctrine and all of Christian teaching by the essential errors that they promote. Well, if you're wondering about heresies, both ancient and modern, you should pick up a copy of the August issue of The Lutheran Witness, where we talk about these heresies, their ancient roots, and how to mark and avoid them. Visit cph.org slash witness to subscribe or learn more at our website, witness.lsms.org. Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Hi, this is Pastor Eric Lang of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Gresham, Oregon. One thing I've asked of the Lord, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Mount Hood, Multnomah Falls, the Oregon coast. Oregon is beautiful, but nothing compares to the beauty of the Lord's house. If you are vacationing in the Portland area, please come join us at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Gresham, where the liturgy lives and God's people worship as one. For more information, go to wherethelitergylives.org. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. Casting Christ's net on the internet. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our school is committed to authentic Lutheranism, the entire Book of Concord, and indeed to authentic Lutheranism as it has continued to be confessed and practiced through the centuries right up into our own time. Dr. Cameron McKenzie, chairman of the Department of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We're committed then to biblical, confessional Christianity and Lutheranism and applying it to the world of today in as effective a way as we can. 
You can find out more about studying for the pastoral ministry at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, at ctsfw.edu, ctsfw.edu, or call 1-800-481-2155. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Pastor Sean Denzer is our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning according to the three-year lectionary, the ninth Sunday after Pentecost. And Sean, we come to the epistle reading in Romans 8, beginning at verse 28. We pick up right where we left off last week. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding indeed for us? Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is a beautifully comforting passage. I think it's well known to us. There's also a number of hymns we can talk about later that uh, quote this passage with all of its long lists of the things that actually would be very daunting lists, frankly. But the point of this passage is to say all of those long lists fall away compared to Christ Jesus. And again, the epistle and the gospel aren't necessarily supposed to match up very well. They're only chosen to be continuous readings. But what we have here certainly fits with what we have in the parable and in either direction, I think, quite well. Because the point is to have Christ Jesus means that everything else can be cast away. Likewise, that Christ Jesus has rescued us and, and loves us so greatly, has, has estimated us and declared us to have such a value as his own blood shed for us that he's going to take care of us all his days. Very comforting, very comforting. So the overall theme of this is that we are joined to Christ and we're joined to Christ inseparably, and that is going to be for our good. What we have in verse 28 is to a certain degree quoted in that psalm that we heard, a little bit in what Moses says. And you see it there in that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together. But you see how it's shifted slightly to emphasize not that the Lord loves us and therefore we ought to love him, 
but but to show how he is working all things together for good for those whom he has called according to his purpose. From this, we understand our teaching of not only predestination in terms of eternal life, election to salvation, but also the election that gives us comfort in the midst of our suffering, the fact that the Lord is working all things together for good. We have this in Joseph when he says at the end of his long saga, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, or God worked it for good. Um, And here that's exactly what Paul says as well, leading us into that list of all the things that are afflicting us. An especially beautiful part is that he has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. I love the way that Paul is referencing something much bigger than this, even though he doesn't say all of it. What is the image of his son? Well, he says at many other places, the image of his son is the image of Christ the crucified. And to be conformed to the image of Christ the crucified, I guess, is to undergo much suffering ourselves as well. We know that Paul teaches this very clearly, as does Peter, that our sufferings make up so to speak, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, uh, that our sufferings are joined to his and therefore have their significance and their meaning, and we we shouldn't uh, be afraid to suffer for his sake. But notice, the purpose is that he would have many brothers, that he would only be the firstborn, not the only begotten son, as we're used to saying from John's gospel, for example. What does this mean? Well, certainly he is the only son of the Father. None of us can be called that natively, you might say, but absolutely we are called that on account of Christ Jesus, that being joined to him in a death like his, as we heard earlier in Romans, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his also. Or as Paul it will talk about later and elsewhere, that as Christ the firstborn from the dead has overcome death in the grave, so all of his brothers, all those who trust in him, all those who've been buried with him in baptism, all those who've been conformed to his image in suffering will also rise with him. That's why he's only the firstborn among those who sleep. And listen to this confluence of of phrases. Not only that he knew this would happen ahead of time, but kind of brushed it out of his mind, but he is predestined, he's determined this for our good, right? Not arbitrarily. That he has called us, that is to say, he sent out his eternal gospel. He's made the words of the Holy Spirit known to us. He's given us these great promises, as our colleague said, to hold on to. And that he has justified us, which means he has declared us to be righteous. He has put his value on us, the value of the Son of God. Thus, as he is glorified, we also are glorified. This introduces the rhetorical question, right? So what can we say to these things? Or what can we say as a result of all that that I've mentioned? But also what can we say to everything else that might come? We can say that if God is on our side, if God is for us, notice if he is the one taking the initiative to be on our side, that's a much more comforting promise than just hearing that if we love God, we think things will work out probably. No, if God is for us, nobody else can be against us. And included in that ought to be our own flesh, our own weakness, our own sin. That's what makes this passage such a great comfort to us. So let me flesh it out for you, Paul says. 
Look at what God has done for us. Look at the great love. You know, if you wanted to put a price tag on his love, since we're about to get to selling and buying, you'd have to say it's this. It's the price of the death of the Son of God, the life of the Son of God, you would say, put in exchange. That's exactly what it says. And he didn't spare that, but he freely gave him up for us all. This is John 3.16, you might say, but here in Paul's writings. How then will he not also with Jesus graciously give us all things? Implication being exactly what Jesus explains for our prayers, that we pray everything in the name of Jesus Christ. Having him, we have access to the Father, and we have every confidence for what is needed, for what we possibly could need or want. And then he brings out the comfort that we ought to have from the fact that God has predestined us, not only for salvation, but that he has already named all of the difficult things that we will go through, and even promises to use them to join us to Christ Jesus, to press us ever closer to him, and to conform us to his image. Well, if God is the one who justifies, if he's the one who judges, and if he has, in fact, judged that we are righteous on account of the blood of Jesus Christ, then who can condemn us? This is constantly the image of the judge in the New Testament and even in the Old, that having Christ as our judge means that we have someone who we already know what his verdict is going to be. He's already declared by his death by his shed blood, by his own words of peace that our sins are forgiven. Therefore, to trust in him and to have him as our judge on the last day is to have the one who almost has nothing to say other than, I guess, to give the the sentence, if you will. What's the sentence for a not guilty person? (laughs) Come, blessed of my father, receive the inheritance prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So Christ has died. More than that, he is raised. He is even now at the right hand, interceding for us, whispering in the Father's ear, showing his blood and saying, this one is mine. So what could possibly separate us from him? Nothing. And when we get that quote there from Isaiah, that for your sake we're killed, we're regarded like sheep to be slaughtered. This is kind of an admission, Paul says. So first he says, who can separate us? All these things? Well, I suppose you could say they do. They certainly are going to be ours. They're going to be after us. And we are appointed, as it were, as sheep to be slaughtered. We're weak in the face of all of these attacks that come to us. But this is the kind of confidence we have in Christ Jesus. It's more than just, you know, we'll get through this, I'm sure. It's actually that he will raise us from the dead. It's actually that that we are righteous before God, and therefore, even if the whole world calls us guilty and condemns us and throws us out. We are a precious treasure to our Father for the sake of Christ Jesus. Therefore, he'll bring us back to life. This is what more than conquerors means. It's not just we'll overcome, but he will overcome in us. That even though we lose, he will see that the victory is handed over to us. This is an example we have in Christ Jesus. He lost his case, you might say, even though it wasn't very well made even. He was condemned unjustly, as far as the people could see, for sins that were totally trumped up. And he did not deserve, you might say, to die for the sins of the world. They weren't his sins. And yet the Father has vindicated this and and shown by the resurrection of Jesus that this sacrifice is 
acceptable, is pleasing, is paid in full and an accepted price. The deal is made. God is glad for it. Whatever analogy you might want to use, this is why we are more than conquerors, that we, like Jesus, will win the victory through death, not by going around it or by escaping it by the skin of our teeth. And that's why he's able to say that not even the things or the forces or the angels, but everything, including death and life itself, none of these things is able to separate us from Christ. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer of LCMS Worship. I'm Todd Wilkin, your link to Issues Etc. Even today, the Holy Spirit calls people through that same powerful word, the gospel. As the word of Christ enters your eyes or resonates in your ears, the Holy Spirit takes this sharp, living, active, two-edged sword and cuts to your heart as he did at Pentecost so that all your sinful thoughts, words, and actions are now exposed. What you had once not seen, you now see clearly. And you are not perfect in your Father's eyes. Your best works are but a polluted garment in the eyes of God. But through that preaching of the gospel, he brings to you a Savior who is pure in the eyes of God. That's an excerpt from Life in Christ, Rooted, Woven, and Grafted into God's Story, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for July. Find it at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. 1-800-325-3040. Ask for Life in Christ. On the other side of the break, we'll get into the gradual and the verse and the gospel reading for this coming Sunday. The Church's Music from the 20th Century The 17th century. The 11th century. The 8th century. The 4th century. The best of the church's music from the past 2,000 years. LutheranPublicRadio.org Sanctifying your commute with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. You and your youth group are invited to the 2023 Higher Things Youth Conference, Beyond Reasonable Doubt, at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas, from July 25th through the 28th. Come hear pastors Brian Wolfmuller and Chris Roseborough teach the youth of our church about doubt and apologetics and give them the assurance that their faith is beyond reasonable doubt. Remaining space is limited. Register now and find more information at higherthings.org. Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. 
In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. journal. Just click the red journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. This is Issues Etc. Sean, what are the gradual and verse for this coming Sunday? The gradual is the one we've had a few times already. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Here we have to say this applies to this steadfastness of his love, I think. We have, again, the unsearchable judgments, inscrutable ways. Remember, Jesus is telling us parables. In fact, that'll be our verse when we get there again. But for him, from him, through him, and to him are all things. Therefore, he is glorified forever. I think we see this as a great echo today of the epistle reading that we just heard, and maybe a a foretaste of what we're about to have in the gospel. When we come to the verse then, and we hear uh, the exact same one that we heard last week, which is kind of unusual during the season after Pentecost, but it's maybe to remind us that we're in the middle of Jesus speaking in parables, uttering what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And it was probably just too good to pass up, given that we're about to hear about treasures and pearls that are hidden in fields. The Gospel reading is Matthew 13, verses 44 through 52. Read that for us. Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into the containers and threw the bad away. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They, that would be Jesus' disciples, said to him, Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Three parables and then maybe a fourth added on at the end, speaking to the disciples. Again, with the, the field and the pearl alike, we have somebody who values this treasure that is found or this pearl and loves it so much that they're willing to give up everything else in order to have it. In the first one, there's maybe something added to it that he buys the whole field just to get the treasure, which is an interesting point. I'm not sure if there's anything there, although if we're understanding it to be Christ buying us, we see that he's left nothing unpurchased, you might say. He did not sort them out ahead of time, if we want to connect it to the last of the three parables. In the second one, which I find striking, is the merchant, who usually is engaged in buying and selling for profit. Here, he is looking for a pearl, or he finds one of them, and it turns out he's out of the business now. He's not going to buy and sell this one. He's going to keep this one forever, and he sells everything else to have it. 
Now, I mentioned already kind of the traditional understanding of this is this is a prompt for us as Christians. If we were to look at the collect again, this would be part of the desiring what he commands, but I think also desiring the promises of God that we would treasure what the Lord has given us so perfectly and completely. To borrow again from our intro, that we would seek the Lord and his strength, that we would seek his presence continually, that we'd remember all of his wondrous works, his miracles, his judgments, his promises, his naming. That is what would lead us to cling to him and throw away all other things. Uh, And even if they all would be taken away from us, we would have lost nothing. This is what a mighty fortress says. Take they our life, goods, fame, child, and wife. Let these all be gone. They have won nothing because the kingdom itself is still ours, because Jesus Christ is still ours. And that is beautiful. But the thing that has made for that, made that true, made him so valuable to us, which causes our faith to rise up in this devotion to him, is absolutely what I think our readings are pushing us toward, to see Jesus as the one, the man from the kingdom of heaven, either of these two, who comes and seeks us and and pays a great cost, we would know that that cost is his atoning blood. That does fit very well, I think, maybe an argument in its favor, with the third parable about the net. Because again, we have an activity that doesn't seem to be ours, but seems to be God's. Uh, So why shouldn't the first two activities be his as well? And that is to cast out the net, to bring in the fish. Now he says, it seems to be that the fish are people, that they're cast in one place or the other at the end. And this then is very similar to the parable of the wheat and the tares that we heard last week. We see that the gathering is universal. Here, we could see this net as the going out of the gospel. The message of Christ Jesus, or maybe even like that field, the scope of his purchase. And that certainly is, we have very clear from other scriptures, is universal. God so loved the world. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And yet, of course, we don't see a world that is that knows its creator as John's gospel begins, but a world that rejects him. What do you do about that? Well, remember, the tares were distressing to the servants when we had that last week. I think we have a bit of a repeat of that this week. It could be very distressing to see that good and bad is swimming around in here. It's not all good pearls and treasures. But what is comforting in this is to see that whatever is not sorted out now is sorted out in the end. I think this accords so well with our epistle again, that what could separate us from Christ Jesus? All of those other things that threaten to separate us, that would seem to for a time separate us, will be shown at the last day to have come to nothing. In fact, they will come to nothing. They will be cast away into that place, again, mentioned as the fiery furnace, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, And yet we will be in the containers, the ones who belong to the Lord, the ones who are kept safe in his hand. What a joy. Just to follow that up, Jesus asks, have you understood all these things? And the disciples say yes. And I'm usually pretty skeptical. They they often say yes, even when they don't seem to understand in the Gospels. But Jesus says here would be the purpose for understanding it, that you'd be able to be trained for the kingdom to bring out treasures new and old. Interesting that it is brought out new first. I might expect old and new. 
certainly this is the character of the gospel, refreshing and showing us the Old Testament so that we would understand it in light of the new. But also that this is the command of the apostles. They're not idle listeners as they're sitting there hearing Jesus' sermons. They're to be knowing this. They're to be recording this. They're to be passing it on to the church so that they also may know Christ Jesus who has gone to such lengths to save them. And I I do think it's kind of rich that many people have noted Matthew himself is this tax collector, is this educated man, seems to be somebody who could be a scribe, and thus wondered whether this is maybe a nod given to himself as some of the other gospel writers give nods. That's very fitting, if so, that he would be the scribe that now is devoted to these things. And he would know firsthand what it's like to be a lost person who has been found and treasured by Jesus. He was once a a hidden thing and a pearl that was dusty and tossed around, and he's now been rescued. So what a joy to share that with others. The hymn of the day is From God Can Nothing Move Me. Tell us about it. Yes, this is a great hymn, a fantastic one. Um, uh, I couldn't recommend it enough. What it emphasizes is this inability to be taken away from Jesus. And I like the way it puts it, from God can nothing move me, because it certainly fits with the Old Testament and with Psalm 105 especially. So not just that uh, if God is for me, who can be against me, but also that nothing will unsettle me. This is certainly a, a comment, I think, on both interpretations of the gospel. We know that Christ has gone to the great length with his grace to rescue us. That's why nothing can really take us away from him. But then because of that, we take this up as a statement, very similar to the way Joshua says it. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord or choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. We know that we don't begin that process, that it's certainly the Lord who chooses us, who, just like he did for Israel, it's not based on our numbers or any of that, not based on our resolve. Nevertheless, we recognize that since he has done this great act of grace, we can't run away from it. We can't abandon it. There's nothing more beautiful and more essential in our life than that he would rescue us. To spit in his face would be a deadly move. Therefore, We take this as our motto. I will allow nothing to move me. I will keep these things distant, as Psalm 105 said, so that it can't. I might recommend just a couple other hymns. Since we do have that beautiful passage from Romans 8, which certainly our hymn of the day references, you might also consider 724. If God himself be for me, I may a host defy. It's maybe got a little more me versus the enemy's attitude to it. But this hymn by Paul Gerhardt also confesses very beautifully the forgiveness of sins on account of Christ's atonement. It does it first by saying, I build on the foundation of Jesus and his blood. If I didn't have it, I would be doomed forever. I would not be able to survive God's judgment day. In other words, I'd be one of those rotten deep sea fish tossed out at the end of the day. But he canceled my offenses. He delivered me from death. He is the Lord who cleanses my soul from sin through faith. I don't think you could get a a clearer explanation of justification there between those few stanzas. And of course, it ends beautifully by 
paraphrasing and saying that even though what lies ahead of me, what attacks me is not hidden from me and goes through the whole list, none of this can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. One other out of place hymn, if I may too, that would be hymn 334. And you're going to call me crazy because this is in the Advent section. And maybe we can't sing the whole hymn, I admit. You might just want to see if the choir is able to sing this one stanza. It's stanza four. It's beautiful. But it really does confess that theme that we brought out all through the readings. Love caused your incarnation, Jesus. Love brought you down to me. Your thirst for my salvation procured my liberty. Oh, love beyond all telling that led you to embrace in love all love excelling our lost and fallen race. I think that stanza really does capture today's theme when we look at all the readings together. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Sean, thanks. Great to be with you. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll look forward to Sunday morning according to the one-year lectionary talking with Pastor Peter Bender about Jesus' warning against false prophets in Mark chapter 7, and we'll discuss the heresy of Gnosticism past and present with Pastor Peter Burfind. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.